Epigenetics Podcast Episode 21. Welcome to the 21st episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Bing Ren from the University of California in San Diego. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Bing, for joining me today. I want to introduce you to our audience. Um, you obtained your PhD in biochemistry from Harvard University in 98 and then carried out postdoctoral training at the Whitehead Institute from 98 to 2001. In 2001, you chose to join the Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research, where you were promoted to full professor at UC San Diego in 2009. Then in 2016, you turned down a directorship position at the University of Chicago to remain on the Ludwig faculty because of the outstanding scientific environment and long-term salary and research support provided by the Institute to you. And uh, there you are still today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, that's a good question. I remember when I was in high school, I became fascinated about biology because uh, I found there were so many questions that uh, are without answers, uh, such as uh, uh, why do we develop uh, cancer and uh, uh, why do uh, humans age and uh, how do we uh, combat uh, illness? A lot of the questions at the time seemed to be uh, very hard and uh, it just fascinated me and I um, began to read a lot of books. My mother is was a uh, professor in a college teaching anatomy so uh, I became fascinated about uh, the uh, the medicine and also uh, my father was also um, uh, worked in the uh, uh, medical college for a number of years at the time so they both had a a profound impact on my um, thought process at the time. So uh, I uh, decided to pursue a, re a career in, um, in life sciences uh, since then. And I, looking back, I never regretted the decision uh, because it, it was a truly rewarding journey uh, since, since then. Yeah, that leads me to your science. I think it's safe to say that you try to uncover functional parts of the human and also mouse murine genomes. Um, in doing so, you were part of the ENCODE consortium. Um, what is the ENCODE consortium and what was your contribution to, to this consortium? Yeah, ENCODE consortium. Um, first of all, ENCODE is an uh, acronym for the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements. Uh, it's an ambitious project, just like the uh, Moonshot project, uh, that aimed at uh, uncovering the functional sequences in the vast universe of human uh, DNA. Um, it started 2003, but uh, the groundwork was laid a few years earlier, um, 
by the complete mapping of the human genome sequence. And uh, at that time, I just completed my postdoctoral training and was uh, going to start uh, my lab. And I clearly remember uh, one day when I was on job interview on the plane, I uh, read the paper that was just published by uh, the Human Genome uh, Sequencing Consortium, uh, describing um, for the first time what the human genome sequences were. And uh, the major uh, puzzle that was revealed by the sequencing of the human genome was that only about 1.5% of the sequence were protein coding while the vast majority of the rest did not appear to uh, code for any function, at least at the time, uh, we did not know how to interpret them. So there were two hypotheses. Uh, one is whether other part of the genome just junk, or uh, alternatively, could they be a functional that we just don't know how to interpret them? So the ENCODE project uh, was launched in 2003 um, to uh, address this uh, very question. Can we discover uh, functional elements and can we uh, interpret their functions? Uh, that was the time when my career just launched as an independent investigator. And I have something going. Uh, so essentially during my postdoctoral training, I invented a method uh, we called chip-on-chip chip, uh, that allows a, uh, a scientist to uh, uncover uh, the binding sites of a uh, protein uh, or histone um, in the DNA. And that was a uh, very important tool because it allowed us for the first time to... Uh, uh, delineate functions of uh, important proteins that we know that carry out regulatory functions such as uh, transcriptional control. Uh, so at that time, uh, we, we know there are uh, different classes of uh, a transcriptional control element, um, such as promoters, uh, enhancers, uh, insulators, and other elements that uh, exist in the human genome, but uh, whereabout of such element uh, was unclear uh, because sequence-wise, they don't have very particular uh, patterns that allow you to uh, unambiguously and accurately review them. So uh, my approach then was to determine the binding sites of transcriptional control uh, uh, factors, uh, assuming that uh, their location must review underlying functional sequence. So, so basically, uh, I had a, a hypothesis, and I had a technique going uh, due to my postdoctoral work. Uh, so I, I, uh, I joined the ENCODE consortium uh, by applying uh, my unique approach to uh, uncover uh, potential functional sequences in the genome. So, uh, so my early days, uh, that was in the early 2000, uh, I demonstrated uh, proof of principle that uh, it's, uh, there are uh, abundant uh, regulatory sequences in the human genome. Uh, they're uh, more abundant than protein coding sequences. 
and uh, you could use uh, combinations of transcription factor binding mapping or uh, histone uh, modification pattern mapping to uh, locate such transcriptional control sequences. Uh, so, so my early work together with uh, other members of the NCON consortium uh, essentially set the foundation for us for later work that allow us to systematically uncover control elements in the human genome. Uh, uh, so uh, technology evolved very rapidly. Initially, uh, the ENCO consortium used mostly DNA microarrays as a tool. This is a very high throughput technology that uh, allow you to do uh, to interrogate human genomes uh, millions of elements at a time. Um, but quickly, uh, the next-gen DNA sequencing technology emerged and uh, rapidly uh, advanced. Uh, and we also adopted this technology and uh, adopted so-called chip-seq, chip which, uh, again, is a f uh, much more efficient and uh, uh, genome-wide approach than the previous chip-on-chip. Chip and that uh, led us and others to uh, quickly uh, delineate potential functional elements in the human genome. Uh, so the consortium work now has gone on for uh, nearly um, now 17 years. Uh, and uh, over this period, uh, you can basically see that our knowledge of the human genome has completely transformed. Uh, we look at the human genome no longer as a black box. Uh, we now uh, actually have the tools and uh, the map to navigate the human genome uh, in uh, unprecedented uh, details. Uh, so that's where we are. Yeah. Uh, so my, uh, my work uh, in this consortium uh, project has been um, very rewarding. Uh, and for the most part, uh, now uh, I feel good that we have a, uh, a whole set of tools and the maps to allow us to uh, investigate uh, a biology uh, in different cell types. So in the following years, like in the after the ENCODE consortium was launched, um, you focused on characterizing those regu regulatory regions that you were just mentioning, like promoters, enhancers, and the generally functional element elements of the genome. Can you share some of the most important uh, results in this area? Yeah, um, the... Uh I like to share uh, perhaps one important findings um, that completely change how I uh, view gene regulation. So we know uh, our early work showed that uh, enhancers are uh, extremely abundant, and we map them using uh, what I mentioned, ChIP-seq, uh, due to the uh, characters of enhancers possess, such as uh, histone modifications or binding to transcription regulators. But enhancers are typically far from genes they control. And uh, it's not clear what genes they would control if you just I look at the enhancer sequence and ask, what is its endogenous function in Uh, specific cells. Uh, what importantly, what genes does it control? Um, and this is not something that you can 
guess based upon sequence information alone. Uh, because we know that enhancers uh, could uh, does not necessarily control the nearby gene. Uh, it could be uh, it could regulate genes farther away, such as amine base pairs away. Uh, a famous example of uh, of enhancers is uh, uh, is one that uh, controlled uh, was discovered in two thousand that uh, correspond to a a sequence uh, polymorphism that controls the uh, polydactyly phenotype, which is to say uh, an individual have, uh, instead of five fingers, have an extra thumb, uh, and that appeared to be controlled by a single point mutation affecting an enhancer uh, in the DNA. And that turned out that enhancer controls a gene located uh, about a million basis. Uh, skipping many genes in between. So this example and many others um, just struck me, uh, and I felt there is an entire layer of gene control that we don't understand. So, so I began to understand, uh, try to pursue this question, and uh, in 2009, uh, an a important paper emerged, um, it was authored by uh, Job Decker from uh, University of Massachusetts, um, together with Eric Lander at, uh, uh, in Boston, uh, MIT. Uh, the method is called HI-C, uh, and this method allows you to uh, map in a genome-wide fashion uh, DNA, DNA contacts inside the nucleus in, in, in tissues or in cells. And that tool uh, was exactly the tool that I was looking for, trying to understand or interrogate the rules of uh, long-range enhancer promoter communication. So I quickly, uh, together with my uh, students, adopted this tool in my lab. It didn't uh, <laughs> go very smoothly. We actually had to uh, experimenting, uh, I had to experiment many, many uh, months and even a year, I remember, that to, to get it to, to work. But once we have the first set of results, the result completely shocked me. It was nothing what I expected. It turns out that uh, enhancer promoter contacts are not the kind that you envision as just point-to-point -point contacts. Rather, uh, it happens in a, a context of Crompton domains. And I call the, these domains uh, topologically associating domains. Um, so this is the paper in 2012 by Dosti, right? Uh, which you're referring to now? That's right. This is uh, the first author uh, was my uh, former graduate student, uh, Jesse Dixon. Uh, Dixon, uh, oh, sorry, yeah. Yes, so, uh, so we... Uh, we made the uh, finding that uh, the genome is organized in a non-random fashion. You can uh, you can look at the packing of the genome and discern uh, local Crompton domains uh, that are characterized by uh, intense uh, intradomain protein-protein, uh, sorry, DNA-DNA contacts and uh, relatively scarce interdomain contacts. 
Uh, and these type of domains are everywhere. Uh, entire genome essentially comprise of uh, thousands of such chromatin domains, each of which is roughly million base pairs in length, containing multiple genes. And uh, the striking features of such domains were that uh, they were apparently invariant um, in uh, different cell types. Uh, so apparently it is a rather stable structure features during development. And furthermore, if you compare uh, um, syntactic regions between, uh, say, human and the mouse genome, and their domain patterns look almost the same, suggesting that this is an evolutionarily conserved feature of a mammalian genome. Uh, that struck us. Uh, and we uh, for, did further characterization. Uh, we found that uh, such domains indeed serve to uh, prevent long-range enhanced promoter contacts. And uh, we hypothesized at the time that uh, having a domain means that elements within the same domain would have a higher chance of interacting with each other and, and therefore uh, allows enhancers to control genes located within the same domain. And uh, and preventing enhancers from activating genes located from a different domain. Uh, and that prediction now had been tested and have been shown to be, um, in many cases, to be true. Uh, and one of the most striking examples has uh, was provided a couple of years later uh, by works from Stefan Mandro's lab uh, in, uh, in Berlin. Uh, he is a developmental biologist and human geneticist. He was looking at a uh, few families of, uh, uh, of his uh, patient uh, with, uh, again, uh, polydactyly uh, traits. Uh, and, uh, and he noticed that uh, in uh, this patient's, the, uh, there was uh, striking genetic deletions uh, happening and those deletions uh, correspond to the boundary of the topologically associating domain that we previously defined in the human genome. And he, then he tested whether the deletion was the reason for causing the uh, phenotype. And he found the mouse homologs of the Z regions delete them and showed that indeed upon deletion, you uh, merge two domains together. And in, uh, uh, consequently, uh, gene activation occur ectopically due to, the, um, uh, due to the now proximity of a, uh, of a enhancer in, uh, near a uh, developmental regulator gene. Uh, so that work demonstrate indeed that uh, the structure of the chromatin plays an important role, probably as important a role as uh, the sequence itself. Uh, so now there are uh, numerous additional examples that have been shown uh, that uh, deleting TAD boundaries or disrupting TAD boundaries uh, in, um, uh, in development could cause uh, abnormally and uh, in cancers, this has also been attributed uh, to uh, 
activation of oncogenes, examples, for example, provided by a, uh, a doctor and a physician scientist, uh, Bradley Bernstein from, from uh, Harvard MGH and Broad Institute, uh, demonstrate that indeed uh, perturbing the chromatin structure uh, is a, a cause of cancer in at least uh, two type of uh, cancers. One is uh, GIST, uh, the gastrointestinal uh, mm -hmm. uh, stromal tumor, and another is uh, glioma. Uh, so now we now appreciate that uh, as important as DNA sequence is to understanding the function of the genome, the structure of the DNA is also important. So you, in this uh, 2012 paper and also in later papers, you compared um, like the structure of the genome from in different developmental stages and also from mice to human and so on. And the structure seems to be conserved, as you already said. So, But the cells and the expression pattern looks very different in different developmental stages. Does it mean that one domain is regulated as a whole and that the chromatin marks are then just um, regulated in those bins of uh, DNA sequences? I wish life is that simple, <laughs> but in reality, it is always complicated. Um, the domain structure is just one of many layers of gene control. Uh, we know for a long time that uh, gene-controlled Uh, genes are controlled by uh, cis-regulatory elements, which uh, refers to promoters, enhancers, and uh, insulators, for example, uh, but also trans factors, which are proteins that uh, encode DNA, uh, that bind to DNA and serve to um, recruit transcription machinery to the DNA or uh, or recruit DNA to the transcription machinery, depends on which viewpoint you have. One thing that needs to be very clearly stated is that transcriptional regulators uh, are important for um, cell type specific uh, gene expressions. Um, and this has been demonstrated by abundant literature. The early work uh, stemmed from uh, 1960s, uh, Jacob and uh, Manon, two uh, French uh, microbiologists, uh, coined uh, the term cis and trans uh, factors when they were studying uh, gene control in um, bacteria. And, uh, and it turns out that the same principle operate in, uh, throughout the eukaryotes and also in, uh, in, in bacteria. The The combinations of transcription factors dict, uh, binding to DNA dictate the specificity of gene regulation. Uh, so th that concept has been there for, uh, for decades, and in fact, it was the foundation of gene control. Uh, during later years, though, it was found that chromatin uh, states, or in other words, how chromatin or how nucleosomes are uh, packed, and how they are uh, moved around and how they uh, are um, modulated uh, place another important uh, layers of uh, gene control. Uh, and we have known for a long time that uh, chromatin exists in two forms, uh, 
One is called euchromatin. Another is called heterochromatin. Heterochromatin refers to uh, mic uh, electron microscopic pictures of uh, DNA, uh, which shows a very dense staining of uh, of DNA that are uh, near the uh, uh, nuclear uh, envelope uh, and appear to be uh, re uh, corresponding to highly silenced uh, inactive part of the genome. Uh, and then the uh, chromatin are regions that look like under on microscope and uh, uh, were more uh, loosely packed. Uh, so that was observations made uh, almost a uh, hundred years ago. Uh, but now with the uh, tools that we have in hand, we can precisely map where euchromatin and hydrochromatin are located. And we do see that uh, they correspond to uh, uh, regions with distinct histone modifications. Um, and that gave us a tool to understand that gene control is not only uh, dictated by the combinations of transcription factor binding, but also by uh, this additional layers of uh, heterochromatin, euchromatin compartments. And now our new latest finding of uh, topologically associating domains further illustrate that uh, within each compartment of heterochromatin and euchromatin, uh, the genes and their regulatory elements are segregated into distinct domains, which provide even additional layers of gene control. So you were able later on to uh, increase uh, the the resolution and, and uh, increase it to at about five to ten kb resolution. Did you find some some new uh, information when uh, improving the resolution? Yeah. Uh, so resolution and uh, um, it is crucial for us to understand how content uh, fibers are folded. Uh, so initially in 2012, uh, due to uh, technology limitations, we uh, were uh, looking at the DNA folding um, every 40 KB segment. Uh, and now uh, newer tools, more uh, advanced uh, sequencing technology has now enabled us and others to examine the folding of crompton fiber uh, in uh, increasingly higher resolution, even down to a few nucleosomes. So is there anything new that reviewed by this? I, I would say the field is rapidly uh, evolving, uh, and there's a lot of new tools that have been developed, both experimental and uh, computational tools. Uh, so we are constantly learning about the new uh, new details of Crompton uh, folding. For example, the most exciting part is our ability to detect uh, so-called Crompton loops, and that uh, allow us to uh, to find structures uh, that were formed by uh, proteins known as CT such as CTCF. Uh, this is a class of protein that has long been associated with insulation, which basically prevent, is to say, uh, it prevent communication between enhancers and promoters. But exactly how this proteins work inside the cell to 
carry out insulation uh, was not clear. Uh, so now with the higher resolution of quantum topology mapping, it became clear that CDCF sit on the anchors of uh, Crompton loops. Uh, you do identify many such loops, thousands or even tens of thousands inside the cell. Uh, a substantial fraction of them have CDCF on the uh, anchors, uh, on the base of the loop. Uh, and uh, curiously, uh, what uh, CDCF binding sites uh, uh, look like is that they are arranged in so-called uh, convergent orientation, uh, which suggests that uh, at every uh, at the base of every loop, you have two CDCF binding sites that uh, appear to have arranged head to head, and uh, this special orientation immediately. Uh, suggest a, a mechanism of how quantum fibers are 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 folded, uh, which is uh, uh, was uh, nicely illustrated by a uh, uh, several scientists. Uh, it's called Crompton. Uh, it's called uh, loop extrusion. So it's a uh, it's a term uh, that was uh, I think invented in the uh, physics. Uh, polymer physics, uh, but was uh, adopted by uh, initially by John Marco from uh, Northwestern University. Uh, early on, he uh, through a physical assimilation experiment, he uh, uh, proposed that loop extrusion could uh, explain a lot of the quantum um, organization features inside the cell. And uh, uh, two scientists uh, later on, uh, one is Raz Lieberman from uh, Baylor I talked College to him. of Medicine. I talked to him in the last episode, so we we have great. <laughs> yes, so uh, so uh, audience should be familiar with his work. Another scientist is uh, Leonard uh, uh, Leonard Mirney from MIT, both independently. Uh, proposed that uh, loop extrusion could explain how CTCF binding uh, orchestrate the quantum loop and the structure of the uh, quantum organization. Uh, so I won't uh, repeat what has been said before, but this uh, now has received uh, extensive evidence of how it works and the important motor proteins involved is called cohesin. Uh, so apparently, cohesin moves around the DNA continuously, but uh, CTCF has the ability to uh, store the movement of cohesin, and by that, uh, you form a uh, temporarily a, a loop structure uh, when a, a cohesin molecule uh, is uh, uh, connecting to a CTCF binding site, arranging a head-to-head -head orientation. Uh, so that uh, was a, uh, I would say, uh, important discovery in recent years uh, that gave us a dynamic view uh, and also mechanistic understanding of how quantum uh, structures are formed. And uh, how is it related to uh, the topologically associated domains that we made earlier? It turns out that CDCF Binding sites are uh, super enriched on the uh, boundaries of TADs or topologically associated domain. 
things. And uh, we and others uh, believe that um, the loop extrusion uh, model directly explains uh, both the whereabout of the tab boundaries and the uh, stability of the tab boundaries. It turns out that tab boundaries are where in the genome where the CTCI binding site density is the highest. And consequently, the duration of, uh, of such loop uh, formed on the boundary uh, is likely the longest. Yeah, that's that's nice if when uh, models uh, co-align. <laughs> so to finish off uh, this interview, I have two more general questions. The first one would be, uh, and you mentioned that you had some problems uh, introducing Hycene to your lab, um, but did you at one point of your career face the situation where you have reached a dead end? Or was this the only time you, you struggled uh, to implement something? Or uh, did you at some point not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? As a as a uh, as a web scientist experimentalist, uh, we think that ninety nine percent of experiments are doomed to fail. And uh, only when things work, you should be very thankful. So uh, yes, indeed, numerous times we have uh, encountered uh, dead ends and uh, uh, experiment that appear to be very very uh, unlikely to work. So. Uh, so I, 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 right now offhand, I just <laughs> I don't have many good examples to interesting stories to tell. Uh, but I, I would say that uh, uh, the long and uh, hard work of adopting high into our lab uh, paid off uh, very well because uh, when we um, see uh, genome organization. Uh, in our system, uh, firsthand, uh, we we, we uh, were able to uncover some of the principles yeah. of uh, genome organization, uh, and that was truly rewarding. So, um, uh, so we are now in the process of uh, adopting uh, newer tools such as high throughput uh, multiplex fish techniques in our lab, and uh, and this is work uh, invented by uh, Dr. Xiaowei Zhuang uh, in Harvard. Uh, she uh, was the inventor of a super resolution uh, storm technology, and she later on developed uh, Murfish and other high soup multiplex tools. Uh, we we uh, was very thankful uh, for her help in setting up such system in our, uh, in our uh, lab and also the Center for Epigenomics at UC San Diego that I did. Uh, so uh, it is taking us a long time to getting new technology set up, but uh, I want to say um, with the new tools, uh, it's clear that there is a whole new layers of uh, genetic control that we are now seeing for the first time. Yeah. So. So this this uh, now another question comes to my mind because you are mentioning the microscopic uh, methods. How do you see? As do they compare to sequencing techniques? And is it just the orthogonal way that you need to implement that you can look at the same thing from a different angle, or how how do you see the those methods comparing? They are complementary, but I want to say 
nothing beats、uh, the fact that you can see the object in front、yeah. of your eyes.、Um, so sequencing-based approach, such as high C, does give you a approach at the time to、uh, probe quantum organization genome-wide.、Uh, but we need to remember that. It was indirect. It was、uh, inferring quantum organization through the pairwise contacts of、uh, DNA, and it's a population-based approach.、Uh, high throughput multiplexed fish give you the ability to see quantum fibers in front of your eyes. Although the current resolution is still a limit,、uh, where At about 5 kb resolution per dots, so it's not great. However, I think、uh, even at this resolution, where are seeing uh, enormous uh, biology, just to give you one example, the topologically associating domains that was described before on、um, using sequencing-based tools, we can see such structures. In individual、uh, cells, in individual chromosomes, but what was striking was that they are much more mobile, much more dynamic and fluidic than we thought.、Um, so it turns out that、uh, the topologically associating domains is a population feature that give you the ensemble average. Of the domains, while in individual cells, you actually have a variety of、uh, domain-like structures、uh, that are constantly form and then、uh, deform, and、uh, but they have a consensus that build up、uh, that you are、uh, looking at from the structure. Sorry, from the ensemble structure. So,、uh, so this new. Layers of information clearly is going to help us、uh, develop more quantitative tools to、uh, explain biology. I, I look at this as a division that is very similar to quantum physics from the classical physics.、Uh, with the quantum physics, now you can learn、uh, physics from as minute scale as the atoms. To as large scale as the universe, I would say in the、uh, biology with the adaptation of uh, microscopic uh, tools,、uh, we we are going to、uh, go through that revolution again. Okay.、Um, in the last、uh, about forty minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Um, can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings, or what we had might have missed in this interview, and what you maybe want to share? Nevertheless,、um, I think I <laughs> captured uh, some of uh, the key、uh, vignette of my、uh, research career. I hope that、uh, more will come.、Uh, I still view myself as young and、uh, <laughs> have unlimited.、Uh, Uh, uh, possibility to make new discoveries. Is there something in the pipeline that we can have maybe a look at in the next weeks or months?、Uh, I just want to say、uh, 
we're looking at the genome at unprecedented uh, resolution now. Before we look at uh, a population mixture, now we're looking at single cell uh, organization of the chromatin, single cell uh, transcriptome, and everything. So, so we're uh, having a lot of fun uh, interrogating uh, our brain. Uh, with single cell based uh, technologies. Uh, so we are, uh, I'm working on a paper um, to describe uh, profiling of uh, uh, nearly a million uh, cells in the mouse brain with the single cell tools uh, that uncover uh, hundreds of uh, different uh, brain cell types. And in each cell types, the uh, functional elements, enhancers, promoters, uh, how they organize together and how they control the output of the genome. Uh, and this is part of this broader so-called brain initiative uh, effort um, that ultimately will review uh, the uh, cells and the circuits of, uh, of the brain that essentially underlying uh, everything who we are, right? how we think, how we yeah. learn, how we behave, how we experience emotion, and how we um, gain knowledge. Uh, I, w I think that is a, uh, a frontier in, uh, in life science today, and uh, the new tools that we are uh, taking, the genomic single cell-based tools, is going to uh, finally have an impact. In, uh, in our uh, in neuroscience. I'm looking very much forward to, to reading that and uh, thank you Bing for your time uh, in these times and uh, yeah, thank you very much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. This was the 21st episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews, comments and give you a shout out in a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotiv.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog motivations at activemotiv.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. <music>